This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 22, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Katrina Carcasis about the controversial use of testosterone testing to determine women's eligibility to compete in elite sport. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. In our first story, melting permafrost in the Siberian Arctic has revealed new clues about the origin of dogs. Researchers collecting Ice Age animal bones in the region thought they had a reindeer rib, but when they brought it back to the lab, it turned out to be something else entirely. What was it, Dave? Well, it turned out to be the bone, and they're not sure what kind of bone, maybe a rib bone, maybe a different kind of bone, of a wolf. And that was on itself not that interesting because there were a lot of wolves that live and have lived in this area in the past. But the surprise came when the researchers brought the bone back to the lab and they did some radiocarbon dating on it. And the dating revealed that the bone was 35,000 years old. And even though this is a wolf, this is an important time for people thinking about when dogs became domesticated because there's been some speculation that dogs became domesticated around this time and dogs evolved from wolves like this one from gray wolves. And so the researchers wondered whether this particular wolf could shed any light on the mystery of dog domestication. All right. So after the radiocarbon dating revealed that it was 35,000 years old, then they looked at DNA as well? Yeah, they looked at the genetic sequence from this bone, and they compared it to the sequence of gray wolves and dogs. And what they found is that the sequence revealed this particular individual may have existed at a really critical point in dog and wolf evolution. And what the researchers think was around this time, perhaps somewhere between 27,000 and 40,000 years ago, there was a three-way split between ancient wolves, and this split led to a lineage that gave rise to today's wolves. Another 
another lineage that gave rise to this particular individual, which researchers are calling the Tamir wolf because of the peninsula on which it was found. And the third lineage would have given rise to today's dogs. Interesting. And that's kind of a big time window. Why does this help clarify the age of dogs, Dave? Well, there's been a lot of debate about exactly when dogs evolved. Some genetic evidence has suggested that it's as recently as 16,000 years ago. Other genetic evidence suggests it's 32,000 years ago or later. Archaeological evidence is similarly divided with some skulls that people say are early dogs being 30,000 years old, but other scientists say those aren't dogs, they're just weird-looking wolves, and the most definitive evidence we have for archaeological evidence of dogs is only about 16,000 years old. And there's even been debate about where dogs originated. Some teams say it was in Asia, others say it was in Europe. And so this particular find doesn't really shed light on where dogs originated, but by giving this 27,000 to 40,000-year time span, it does lend weight to this idea that dogs evolved on the older side of what scientists were thinking, you know, perhaps 30 thousand years ago or even earlier. Interesting. And it's easy to look at Siberian Huskies as kind of looking similar to wolves, but are they one of the oldest dog breeds? Well, that was another interesting question this study addressed. There's Siberian Huskies and also a breed called Greenland Sledge Dogs, which also look a bit like wolves. And researchers have long suspected that these are very ancient breeds of dogs, potentially some of the first breeds of dogs stretching back tens of thousands of years. The new study does lend a bit of weight to that because with the research which was found was then when they compared the DNA of this Tamir wolf to that of about 48 dog breeds, they found that huskies and these sledge dogs shared a lot more in common with Tamir wolf than other dog breeds did. And that could suggest that these breeds are very ancient. However, it could also suggest that these breeds being in this area of the world may have fairly recently interbred with some of the descendants of the Tamir wolf, therefore giving it some of that DNA, which would suggest that this similarity these breeds share with Tamir wolf has a lot more to do with interbreeding than an ancient origin. So that question is still up in the air. That's well, a fascinating development in the history of dogs. For sure. Next, why do so many prisoners in the United States return to prison after they've already served time? A new study offers fresh insight into recidivism. What did the researchers find, Dave? Suzanne, there's been this question of why recidivism rates are so high, why so many people that go to jail and are let out go back to jail again. And various theories have been proposed. You know, maybe it's just mental illness or drug addiction or the rehabilitation wasn't very good. This new study suggests a compelling alternative, that being that the reason so many ex-prisoners return to prison is that they're going back to neighborhoods where a lot of other ex-cons live. So, Dave, how did they go about studying this? Well, as you can imagine, it's a sort of a hard experiment to do in real life. You can't, as a scientist, intervene and tell a prison where to place its ex-cons. But there was a natural experiment that happened after Hurricane Katrina. It turns out a lot of ex-prisoners were not able to go back to their original neighborhoods because they were flooded, and a lot of them actually got placed in various other areas of the country, some of which had higher proportions of ex-cons than others. And what the researchers found was that the ex-cons that went to neighborhoods that were heavier in ex-cons 
were more likely to return to prison. In fact, in some of the most affected neighborhoods, where five of every thousand residents were recently released from prison, nearly 35% of ex-prisoners were back behind bars within a year of getting out, and that compares to just 22% when these ex-cons were sent back to neighborhoods with only one recent parolee for every thousand people in the population. Interesting. And do the researchers have any idea why the concentration of returning prisoners to a neighborhood would affect affect its recidivism rate? Well, it's a bit of an open question, but there's a couple ideas. One is that if you've got a neighborhood with a lot of ex-cons in it, there's going to be sort of a culture in that neighborhood that sort of disregards the law, and so people are just sort of more likely to break laws. The other idea is that if you've got an ex-con out there and he's able to make a lot of connections with a lot of other ex-cons, that he's more likely to return to crime than if he were to go to a neighborhood where he had a harder time reaching out to people who had committed crimes in the past. It seems seems like these rates would take a toll on neighborhoods, Dave. So, you know, we've been talking about the impact on individuals, but, you know, the impact on neighborhoods can also be very devastating if you've got neighborhoods where you keep on sending a large number of ex-cons back to. You can imagine that that's not doing a lot of great things for the neighborhood. In our final story, we head to Mars, where astronomers have long debated the origin of its two moons. Were they snatched up by the planet from the nearby asteroid belt, or were they the result of a large object colliding with Mars? What do the most recent computer simulations tell us, Dave? Well, the computer simulations sort of go against what astronomers have thought for decades. And the reason this idea of Mars actually snatching its moons from the asteroid belt has been so popular is because its moons look a lot like asteroids. Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, and they're both dark and crater-pocked and potato-shaped a lot like asteroids are. So that's really been the going theory. But as you mentioned, uh, Suzanne, there's been some speculation that, well, maybe an impact actually hit Mars, created a cloud of dust and debris that coalesced into the moons. And that's not so far-fetched because something very similar is thought to have happened to Earth, and that's what created our moon. And so these computer simulations try to figure out, well, what if we had a very large object in the early solar system, roughly 10 times as massive as Ceres, which is the largest asteroid we know of? And that's also not so far-fetched because we had a lot of giant objects like that flying around our early solar system. So what if you had an object like that that crashed into Mars, what would happen? And what the researchers found is that an object like that would indeed cause such a tremendous impact that dust would go flying into the air and could coalesce into potentially as many as three moons, not just two moons. So there might have been a moon that no longer exists? Yeah, the idea is that Mars may have had a third moon and because of the perhaps instability of its orbit, crashed back down into the planet's surface. So how would scientists actually resolve this controversy once and for all, Dave. Well, if these moons were indeed former asteroids, they should still have a lot of water ice on them or in them, as a lot of asteroids do. But if they had formed from a giant impact, we would expect all of that water to be vaporized. So if we could send a spacecraft to those moons to study their composition, we should be able to resolve the debate once and for all. And what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about how octopuses see with their skin. Also a story about a very interesting archaeological 
medical investigation that has revealed the life history of a woman who lived 3,500 years ago in the Bronze Age and who may have been a sun-worshipping priestess. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how the White House plans to improve the health of bees. That's got the politicians buzzing. Forgive me for that. Also, a story about the future of America's involvement in the Eater International Fusion Experiment. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Next, in 2014, a young Indian sprinter named Duti Chand was barred from international competition because testing revealed that she has naturally high testosterone levels, which fall above acceptable limits set for women by the International Association of Athletics Federations, or IAAF. Her case is currently under appeal, challenging the latest iteration of policies that seek to define what constitutes a biological woman when it comes to elite sport. Bioethicist Katrina Carcasis discusses biological sex testing in elite sport this week in Science. Katrina, why has there been such an emphasis in elite sport on determining who can compete as a woman? And is this a double standard? You know, from the time that women have entered elite sport, there's been a concern about protecting what officials have thought of the purity of the women's category. And what that's meant in practice has been a concern about monitoring who competes as a woman. And the official narrative has been a concern about men impostering and trying to compete as women. But if you look at some of the other documents available from policymakers, what we also learn is that there's been a concern for women who have atypical sex traits and at times what policymakers had called hybrid beings that have permeated these kinds of discussions around sex testing and eligibility for women. And they've never had this level of scrutiny for men. So these kinds of policies have only ever applied to women to determine women's eligibility in the women's category. And testing for biological sex is nothing new. How have sports officials tested for competitors' biological sex in the past? And what were some of the problems with such methods? So trying to determine competitors or really women's biological sex has been called various things, including sex testing, gender verification, femininity controls. But the point of all of them has been the same, which is to verify that women trying to compete in the women's category are actually women. And so the criteria for classification and therefore exclusion in other earlier policies have been genitalia, physical exam, it then switched to buckle smears, and then chromosomes, and then at least for the Olympics, the sex-determining region of the Y chromosome. And so these were always a first-step mandatory screening in a medical process in order to determine sex for women competitors. 
the problems with these tests are not with the tests per se. And what I mean by that is certainly chromosomal tests are able to determine chromosomal status. The problem with all of these has really been the assumption that there's any singular marker of biological sex that's adequate to classify people into a two-sex system. And let's talk about testosterone. Why did elite sports organizations start turning to testosterone as a metric for biological sex? What policymakers have called the abandonment of these policies was based on a recognition that sex is irreducible. And what I mean by that is that there is not one single marker that you can use to label people as men or as women. There will always be variation that complicates what people want to understand as a simple system where you look at one sex marker and then are able to say this person is male or female. So for 10 years, they had what was an ad hoc policy that enabled investigation, but that did not require mandatory screening of all women athletes. And then they turned to testosterone. And I think there are a number of ways in which this move to examine testosterone levels rather than, say, sex chromosomes feels rational. And for one thing, testosterone is associated with factors that affect athletic performance, like muscle size and strength. The problem is that it's just not associated in the simple linear way that this policy suggests. And it also can't be used, for example, to rank athletic potential or capacity across different individuals. I think there's another reason that it feels rational, which is that testosterone, unlike chromosomes, does have some correlation with externally observable traits that are read as masculine, and this might include hair patterns and musculature. But again, the relationship between testosterone and these external traits is also not straightforward. And I think finally, from clinical studies on androgen levels in men and women in the normal population, if you will, there is a understanding that testosterone is sex dimorphic, showing no overlap between males and females in most cases. So when you put these three things together, I think for policymakers, it was viewed as the best available parameter to regulate eligibility in female athletes. And although it's assumed that testosterone levels are sex dimorphic, that is showing little or no overlap, height, muscular development, and strength are actually not sex dimorphic. And those are the things that they're really concerned about is the effect of testosterone on those factors, which then affect athleticism. Interesting. And what do recent studies tell us about testosterone levels in elite athletes? Are they different than, say, the average person? So I think one of the things that might be surprising to your listeners is actually how few studies there are of testosterone levels in elite athletes. And that's really what we're talking about in this particular paper, because there are only two large-scale studies, and they've only recently been published, and they come to opposing conclusions about whether or not there's an overlap or a gap in testosterone levels in elite athletes in the way that you see in the typical population. And the first study that was published on testosterone levels in elite athletes actually contradicts the claim that androgens are sexually dimorphic. And in fact, those authors found that there is no clear separation between testosterone levels in elite male and female athletes. Rather, there's actually an overlap between the sexes. The second study, which was done by researchers affiliated with the International Association of Athletics Federations, which has one of these policies, putting a ceiling on testosterone levels in women, 
found actually that both the median testosterone and free testosterone values were close to those reported in sedentary young women. So in other words, they argued that T levels in women elite athletes were quite similar to what was found in the quote unquote normal population. And it's important to remember though that the overlap that the first study found is created not simply by some women with higher than typical levels, but actually by a surprising number of men with lower than typical levels, including some men in what's considered the women's reference range. We can't know if there's an overlap for men with low levels from the second study by the IAAF researchers because they actually didn't include data on men in that study. But we do know that there were some women with testosterone levels that were above the female typical reference range. So one study shows an overlap. The other study says there is no overlap, but what we talk about in our paper is how they come to these opposing conclusions. So getting back to the question of whether testosterone changes someone's athletic performance, if a percentage of male athletes tend to have low testosterone, would high testosterone in some male athletes be an unfair advantage for them? You know, I think this is one of the questions that people who have been critical of this policy have asked. You're going to have a policy that places a ceiling on testosterone because of an understanding that this is the singular most important driver of athleticism, then the question is why only apply this to women and why not set a ceiling for men as well? I'm not actually advocating that because I don't think there's enough evidence that testosterone is the singular most important driver propelling athleticism. But it is certainly worth asking why, if that's the theory being put forth, that it would only be applied to women and not to men. Because there actually is a fair amount of variation in testosterone levels in elite male athletes. And I think perhaps one of the other things that would be surprising the listeners is that there's actually not a large body of research on the relationship between endogenous, that is non-doping testosterone, and athleticism in elite athletes. And the research that does exist has mostly been done in men. But what's coming out of this research loud and clear is that testosterone is extraordinarily dynamic. And it not only responds to cues, but it's responsive to particular cues, both behavioral cues, but also social cues. And so it's not the case that testosterone is the kind of substance that stays relatively stable throughout not only simply the day, but throughout one's lifetime. So there are a lot of temporal shifts in testosterone from time of day, time of month, time of year, and age that would vary among both men and women, but also specifically women. And this makes it incredibly hard to measure because you will likely get different measurements depending upon when and how you measure testosterone in women. Is there evidence that women with high testosterone are at an unfair advantage over other women athletes? 
You know, I think the easiest way to answer this question is that IAA officials themselves acknowledge, and this is a quote, there is no clear scientific evidence proving that a high level of T is a significant determinant of performance in female sports. And that's the end of the quote. So the question really is, what evidence is there to single out testosterone as providing the unfair advantage over any other physiological or even even socioeconomic factor that might affect performance. And what they've said is that kind of evidence isn't there. And I think part of the reason that people feel that testosterone is rational and why this policy makes sense is that there's also a tendency to confuse correlation for causation. And so the idea is that men have the highest testosterone levels and typically the fastest time. So testosterone must be what causes the performance boost. And there have been policymakers who have used studies demonstrating correlations between testosterone, for example, and strength or speed. But what they're not looking at are the many interactions and complexities that make it impossible to draw a straight line from testosterone levels to athletic outcomes. And that really cannot be done at this point because the science just isn't there to say that there's a direct correlation for endogenous testosterone and performance, especially in women athletes. And in your paper, you discuss diverse sex development and how it might affect testosterone levels and hence possible exclusion of women athletes by elite sports organizations. If someone is recognized as a woman because of her gender identity, why not in sport? So to be clear, these policies apply to what medicine calls hyperandrogenism, and that means atypically high T levels in women. That can include women with diverse sex development, people with intersex traits, and those are people that have atypical sex trait or what is commonly thought to be male typical and female typical sex traits. But it also includes women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome, women that might have adrenal tumors. And so it applies to both groups. And what's interesting to me about these regulations is that the women who are competing in the women's category have already satisfied the legal requirement that they're women. In other words, they have to prove that in order to compete in the women's category. These regulations imply that classifying an athlete according to the sex indicated on her legal documents is not sufficient for the purposes of eligibility in athletic competition. And so therefore, they've instituted an additional way to mark women that is only in use and pertinent for the purpose of sport. And so I've come to call this athletic sex because it is a way of categorizing women according to sex that only is implemented and matters in the case of elite sport competition and in no other domain. These are women who have lived and competed as women their entire lives, have never been recognized as anything other than women, who are all of the sudden being told that owing to their higher than typical testosterone levels, they can no longer compete in the women's category without lowering these levels. And everyone is clear that these women are not doping and they're not cheating. So that's not the issue here. It's that they have higher 
than typical natural levels of testosterone. And Katrina, tell me more about Duti Chan's case. So in 2014, Duti Chan was identified under this policy and not allowed to go compete in the Commonwealth Games. And she felt that because she had always competed as a woman and her testosterone levels were her own natural levels, that she didn't feel that she should have to lower them in order to continue competing as a woman. And so her choice was to appeal the policy to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Switzerland. People call it the Supreme Court of Sport. Her case was heard in March, and there's a decision forthcoming. And so at this point, it's not clear what will happen with these policies until that decision is announced. Katrina, are sports organizations focused on the wrong questions here? In trying to come up with some sort of metric for fairness, are they actually making things less fair in a sense? The argument that we make in the paper is that if one of the aims of this particular policy is to create a fair and level playing field for women athletes, you cannot explicitly exclude fairness for women with naturally high T. And so some of the same problems with earlier sex testing policies are present in these particular policies, which is that it singles out a particular group of women as not being able to compete because of a belief that they have an unfair advantage. But the science is not there to support that. And so while some see the problem as being high testosterone leading to unfair advantage, I think others, like us, feel that there's a different problem here. And that's that women who have lived and competed as women their whole lives suddenly find themselves having to undergo medical interventions in order to remain eligible to compete in a category to which everyone agrees they belong, and that includes policymakers. So what we feel is that what counts as a fair and level playing field for women must take into account all women athletes, including those with naturally high T or those with intersex. And certainly decades ago, policymakers faced these exact same concerns. And what they concluded is that women who were raised as girls and classify themselves as women should not be excluded from competition as women. And we believe that that's where we should come to today in current policies. What recommendations would you make to elite sports organizations? Women who are competing in the women's category are legally women. And there is no clear and compelling evidence that testosterone is the one factor that determines athletic outcomes. So when we take those two things together, I'm actually not sure what the problem is that these policies are trying to solve because these are women and there is not evidence that they have unfair advantage from the scientific evidence that's currently available. So what I suggest to do regarding testosterone is treat women in the same way that we treat men. And that is many of these women are identified through doping screens. And if a woman's doping screen comes back with an unusual testosterone level, that what they do is proceed to the carbon isotope testing, which allows them to say whether or not that testosterone is natural or doping. And if it's shown to be exogenous, that is doping testosterone, then you follow the world anti-doping regulations for all athletes. If it's found to be natural levels, then you simply close the case. And that's what's done for men. And 
I don't see any reason why that is not how women should be handled as well. Thanks for speaking with me, Katrina. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Katrina Carcasis and Rebecca Jordan-Young write about the use of testosterone testing of women athletes in elite sport, This Week in Science. Also in the magazine this week, you won't want to miss a set of special reports from the Terra Oceans Consortium, a three-year project to characterize plankton, species interactions, and community structure in the oceans. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.